You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, if you could begin on your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians. And hey, I want to say thank you to our worship band. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, got, got a little of that old-time religion this morning. You know, got me... Got me going. And hey, we had a new, we had a new record set. We got a record setter here. Rob Moga right here. Y'all, this is the second campus he's, let, he's helped lead worship at today. Just today. He was at South Campus earlier this morning playing. So new record. We'll put you in the Hall of Fame uh, when we ever we create that for our worship band. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we are well into this great book of 1 Corinthians. And what have we found so far? Let's review a little bit. We have found that the church is the original Christian jewelry, okay? The church is the cross on display for the rest of the world to see. We've also found that this is a book not about you in that way. It's not about you putting the cross on display. It's a book about us. It's something that all of us can do, only do together as the church. And now we're in the part where it's going to get fun. We're going to get to some tricky passages, some hard passages. We're going to get to some places where you're going to read this and start asking, well, what do I do with that? I don't even know what I do with that. We're going to get to some parts where it talks about things like head coverings, you know? And you're going to read that and think, I don't know, that, that, that makes me uncomfortable. But, and so we want to just say, well, that, you know what? That was just all for back then. That was just cultural. That was just for them. But then we'll read a little farther and we'll get to the chapter that was probably read in all of your weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And to that we want to say, that, that wasn't just for them. That was for everybody. That's universal. That's for us. So which is it? Is it for them? Is it for us? Does it apply today? Does it just apply back then? If it applies today, can we just copy and paste? I mean, is it, is it just a carbon copy? What I want to do is I want to start off giving us just kind of a framework for how Paul is going to address these issues, and this is what we're going to use to help us decipher, okay, what's for us, what, what's for them, and how do we take what was for them and apply it to us? There's three steps, and y'all, I'm sorry, Paul didn't write like we were all taught to write in the sixth grade, you know, he, he'll hop around. And so we have three steps, but some, he doesn't always go one, two, three. He'll go one, three, two, or three, two, one, or he'll just mix it all around. But we're going to try to present him this way to help us make sense of it. So the first step. He's going to talk a lot about a local problem. That's the first step, is examine the local problem. 1 Corinthians might be the most occasional book in our New Testament. By occasional, I mean he's writing into a very specific occasion. And so as he talks about these things, y'all, he has a specific name, a specific day, a specific event in his mind. That this thing actually happened to this person, old Joe Bob did this, and then Bernadette, probably one of their names, but then she said this, and we've talked about it, and I'm going back and I'm telling them the next thing about it. So you could contrast it to like Ephesians. So you read Ephesians, and there's this big picture universal theology in most of the book. Well, that's not large chunks of 1 Corinthians. And there's something that makes it a little trickier. So we only get one side of the conversation, and we're getting in on the middle of it. So have you ever walked up to a group of people talking, and somebody says something, 
And without the context, you have no idea what's happening. They're like, I beat my kids so bad last night. And you're like, oh, what? And then somebody's got to explain, no, we're talking about video games. We were playing a board game last night. You're like, oh. It's only after you get the context and both sides of the conversation, it makes sense. Y'all, that's us. This is actually the second of four letters. We only have two of them. There's been lots of personal visits and reports and conversations back and forth that we don't have. And the part we do have, it's just one side. And so this part, the the local problem, y'all, this is specific to them. And y'all, this is so important. Otherwise, in 1 Corinthians, you'll read one or two verses and say, oh, well, that's what that means to me. But y'all, Paul wasn't writing to you. Paul was writing to them. And so we got to do the best we can to find out what's the context, what's the name and uh, occasion and event and circumstance that he is writing into. And it's going to take some work to do that. So that's the first step, the local problem. The second step is the universal theology. And so Paul doesn't just start off barking out instructions. No, no, tell them do this, you do this. No, no, he pans out, he backs up, and he reminds them of some core theological truth about God. Something that they knew but have forgotten. And it's often surprising. I mean, it kind of reads like he's changing the subject. It's not readily apparent what one has to do with the other. And it's not where I would have gone with that. And so, you know, they'll ask about speaking in tongues. And they'll say, let's talk about the Babylonian captivity in Isaiah. They'll have questions about sexual conduct. And he'll say, remember the Passover. That's not where I would have gone with that. But that's where Paul goes. But each of these things, y'all, it's, not, it's, it's nothing new. Most of the time, he's going back to the Old Testament, to the very beginning. It's nothing new, but it's something they have forgotten. And what he is doing is trying to heal their gospel amnesia. And he's saying, remember the cross. Remember the gospel. Remember who God is. Because what's happened is they know these things, but they have set them aside and gone about their daily life. They have not brought these truths into what they're facing today. And so these parts of 1 Corinthians, the universal theology, they apply to us today and everyone, everywhere, at all times. They're universal. Which brings us to the third part. And the third part is where he's going to connect the dots, the local problem to the universal theology. And so that third step is the application of the theology. He's going to say, because God is this, Here's what you do with meat sacrificed to idols. In this specific situation, this is how you Corinthians, this is how you together put the cross on display for the world to see. So the question for us is, okay, this part, this application of theology, is this for us or for them? And the answer is, it depends. This is the trickier one. This is the one where, you know, sometimes, yeah, it applies to us and it applies the same way. But there's other times, yes, it applies, but in a different way based on our circumstances and on our culture. So take example, head coverings. Okay, so apparently in Corinth, you communicated a lot, especially about how you viewed authority based on what you did with your hair. But y'all, the worst thing we could do is, okay, in this church, all men are banned from wearing man buns. That's that, okay, that may not be the worst thing we can do. Okay, I, I, hold your applause. It would be missing the point. Let's say that. It would be missing the point. And if you're here today and you have a man bun, you look great. You, you really do. You look great. But you know what? We might need to think seriously about how we speak 
about the flags we wave, about how we present ourselves on social media, we we would need to think carefully about those things. You know, this is so important. This is so important. This is what makes 1 Corinthians an amazing book. 1 Corinthians is not here for us to just copy and paste everything that they did into what we do. 1 Corinthians is here to teach us to think biblically. The goal is for us, for us, just like they had to do, to remember who God is, to remember the cross, remember the gospel, and not just set it aside, but to bring it into our everyday lives, to think how we can put the cross on display. Because, y'all, we face all kind of issues that the Bible says nothing about. The Bible doesn't tell us how to deal with the internet or capitalism or when the church splits over the Rangers and the Astros, you know, and they're all fighting each other. We're from the same state. It doesn't say anything about that. What it does tell us is who God is and what he has done. And then it invites us to put the cross on display. That's what it does. So we're going to follow this three-step process this morning and in a lot of future mornings as we go through 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to see how to put this cross on display in our disagreements. He's going to talk about lawsuits among believers. And as we follow these three steps, here's where I think we're going to arrive. Our big idea for today. Today's disagreements are settled with tomorrow's hope and yesterday's transformation. Today's disagreements are settled with tomorrow's hopes and yesterday's transformation. Let's open our Bibles. 1 Corinthians 6. We'll read the first 11 verses and then talk about it. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let's look at the local problem first. Step one. He's talking about lawsuits among believers. And y'all, their culture was a very litigious society. The Greek culture as a whole, but especially Corinth. Corinth and Athens were like the hubs of this litigious culture. And we've seen several ways that their culture was a lot like ours, but more. That's how I would describe them. A lot like us, 
but more. They've turned that dial up to 11 in a lot of ways. And so we've seen this with their kind of celebrity influence, influencer culture. We've already seen it in their, their love for style over substance. And we see it here in their legal system. The legal system in Corinth was not used so much to seek justice as it was to, not, to bring yourself up or knock others down the social and economic ladder. So a lot of people would use it. Kind of the haves would use it to take advantage of the have-nots because they had all the influence in the courts and they knew they would win. People would use it to make a name for themselves or to become celebrities. People would use it to, to settle a vendetta, settle a personal score. Commentator David Garland writes this. He says, in deciding to sue, one first had to calculate the cost and chances of winning, not on the basis of the merits of the case, but on the defendant's social status and powerful connections. People in the ancient world contended for honor in the law courts. The pursuit of litigation often had little to do with the pursuit of justice. That tells you a lot. The pursuit of litigation often had little to do with the pursuit of justice. Another commentator, Craig Keener, says this, Roman society was notorious, notoriously litigious. In Corinth, with its rising class of nouveau rich, was even more so. Many ancient lawsuits were simply pretexts for avenging insults and pursuing enmity. And y'all, the population loved it. They loved it. The legal system was entertainment for them. They didn't have TVs, you know, back then, but think Judge Judy. Think our true crime podcast. Listen, and I know, I know a lot of you sit at home and you watch the ID channel, okay? They didn't have the ID channel. They had to actually go to court to see this stuff. William Barclay says this, the law courts were one of their chief entertainments. In a Greek city, every man were, was more or less a lawyer and spent every great part of his time either deciding or listening to law cases. Y'all, to the extent, so they, they had a form of a jury and citizens had to go do jury duty. Now, most of us aren't real excited about that. Y'all, they love jury duty. In fact, so they didn't cap the amount of jurors. It was like anyone who's a citizen and wants to show up and be on the jury can be on the jury. Sometimes they would have juries of up to a thousand people on the jury. They just knocking each other over to get to be on this jury. Why? It was entertainment for them. They, they wanted to see what was going to happen. They wanted to see the scandal. And members of the church, instead of putting the cross on display, are participating in these vendettas and spectacles in the courts. And worse, they're doing it over trivial matters. That's what he says in verse 2. The language he uses it refers to what we may call like small claims court. And so this is instructive, okay? So he's, these aren't criminal cases. No one's getting murdered. These are not big, complicated legal cases. Okay, nobody's house got burned down. And so he, he's not attacking, he's not forbidding Christians participating in the civil legal system. In fact, he, Paul teaches in Romans 13 that the civic authorities are ordained by God for the good of society, okay? So we have to look what we know from this specific situation. It seems to specifically apply to voluntary, trivial, civil suits by believers against believers. That's, that's the local problem, Okay? Now, I think most of us, if we're writing this letter, the advice we would give would be, stop that. 
Don't do that anymore. I think we all kind of intuitively know that seems like a, a bad plan. That's not going to go well. But why? Why? What, what's the theology underneath that advice? Well, this, let's move to step two, the theological truth. And in the theological truth, Paul is going to point to two things. He's going to look forward to eschatology. He's going to look back to salvation. He's going to say, you need to bring tomorrow's hope and yesterday's transformation into today's disagreements. So he starts off saying, okay, let's talk about your future. He begins by telling them who they will become. And he says, you will judge not just the world, but also angels. I can't help but think that when God said this, there was some angel that was like, hold on, run that by me one more time. Can you run that back, God? You see this kangaroo court going on down there? They're going to judge us? Seems like a bad plan. I don't know. Men and women, you need to know this. You need to know this. Your eternal future is not you just being some bodily ghost floating around in the clouds playing a harp somewhere. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. One day, after the resurrection, the saints will reign with Christ on the earth. It says that in Jude. It says it multiple times in Revelation. But you know what? It's not just a New Testament teaching. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the beginning, creation. The Bible tells us that we are created in God's image and likeness. Now, that, those were two words mean a lot of things. But the first thing they would have meant in the ancient Near East would have meant you are a king. Kings were said to be made in the image and likeness of their gods because they were seen to be ruling with that God's authority and in the way he would do it. They were, they were seen as the vice regent of God. And so when God creates man, it's for a purpose to be his vice regents, to rule as his representatives on the earth. And men and women, that purpose did not go away with the fall. That purpose remains and it will be redeemed. You remember the commandment he gave Adam and Eve? Subdue the earth and rule over it. Subdue the earth and rule over it. That mandate precedes the fall, precedes the entering of sin into the world, and it will remain after sin is removed from the world. We will continue to subdue the earth and rule over it for all eternity. That may sound a little weird to us. It sounded weird to them. And that's because the Greek culture and our culture all leaned towards Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism said, okay, spiritual, unseen is good. Physical, something I can see and touch, bad. Spiritual, eternal, physical, just temporary. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created it all. Unseen and seen, spiritual and material. He created it all and he called it all what? Good. And he will redeem it all. That's the meaning of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, which the Bible says is just the first fruits that us in a redeemed creation will follow in his footsteps. And so our hope, our future, y'all, the eternal kingdom will be a physical existence on a redeemed earth. And we don't often think of it this way, but there will be cities, there will be culture, y'all, there will be life. Think of it as a re-identification. 
the same purpose, the same reason God created it all to begin with. And in that eternity, we will be ruling with Christ. We will be God's vice regents, ruling with his delegated authority. And so here Paul says, we will be judging. I think it means a couple things here. So verse 2, he says, we will judge the earth. I think he has in mind there the, the judgment seat of Christ. What we would think, you know, when you say judging, we usually think dishing out punishment for wrong. Y'all, I think that's what he's talking about here. Now, it's the judgment seat of Christ, not of Clint, not of you. So Christ is really doing, but somehow we will be participating in that. Exactly how? I have no idea, y'all. No clue. The Bible doesn't tell us. But somehow we'll be around. But then he says, you're going to judge the angels. Now, what does that mean? I don't think there's going to be, you know, for all eternity, angels falling away and rebelling. The Bible seems to say it. That has come to an end. But that word judging, y'all, it can simply mean making decisions. And so here I think he's talking about what we may say administrating, adjudicating. In fact, right here, right now, the guy who, the elected official who oversees and administrates Smith County, what do we call him? A judge. Now, he doesn't sit in a courtroom all day, but he is adjudicating and administrating over Smith County. That's, that's what I think he's talking about here. The, we will be making decisions, exercising wisdom, ruling over part of God's kingdom, including the angels. They're not going to be superior to us. We're going to be superior to them. What? I, you know, I, I tried all week to wrap my mind around that, and I, I really can't. I'm kind of with the skeptical angel on this one. That seems like a bad plan. I want everyone to pay attention to this. This is who you will be. This is how much God will restore and redeem you. Didn't God say he is able to do more than we can think or imagine? Y'all, he's not talking about a new car when he says that. He's talking about this stuff. This stuff that we, we have a hard time even wrapping our minds around. That's how great our God is. That's how big his plan is for us. So think about this. Think about if you knew a year from today, you knew God had written it in the sky. We had passed a law. You knew, everyone knew, a year from today, you're going to be president of the United States. Wouldn't that influence how you handled the little fender bender you got in the parking lot later today? Man, I think it would. I think it'd give it some perspective. I think I'd want to handle that in a way that, in a way that people actually wanted me to be their president. You know, this is Paul's argument. He's saying if you're going to do that much greater, much bigger thing one day, can't you do this little thing today? Yes, you can. Let tomorrow's hope inform how you settle today's disagreements. But Paul isn't done. He's not done because he's also going to, next he's going to say that today's disagreements also needs, need yesterday's transformation. So he talks about their past, verse 9 and 11. Now, if you've got your Bible with you, look down, look at verse 9 and 10. It's kind of a famous list of sins. But it's an interesting list, you know? I mean, most of the sins that he lists, they're either sexual in nature, which we know that's, gonna, that's a big problem in the church, 
or they have to do with cheating other people, which we know is a big problem in the church. It's like, it's like these two categories seem to be uh, centered on the things that, that are most destructive in the church right now, that are, that are most preventing them from putting the cross on display. That list, it hits most of the Ten Commandments. It hits all of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how we treat each other. Again, he seems to be focusing in on our relationships. It's a list that, you know, I think if we're honest, the way we read this list is as if some of those are in like big jumbo font and some of them are like the little font print on the terms and conditions that you never read. So homosexuality stands out. It stands out for everybody. In fact, I would say probably in the past five to ten years, every time I've heard these verses taught, it's been on the issue of homosexuality. But then he adds greedy, coveting. Have you ever wanted something you didn't have? Then he adds thieves. How are you doing on your tax returns? Ever brought anything home from work that didn't belong to you? But he, here's what's most interesting to me. All the times I've heard these verses taught, you know what context I've never heard these, these taught in? Lawsuits. I've never heard these verses taught in, in connection with lawsuits. But y'all, that's the context. That's what he's still talking about. Doesn't mean all these other principles don't apply. There's definitely principles in there. But it is important that we know the context. And in context, what he's doing is he's contrasting the believers in the church with the judges, the lawyers, the jurors, the secular people who they are wanting to make their decisions, to make judgments in the church. He's saying, you're, you're turning to these people to settle your disagreements. That's not going to end well for you. But then he, he says probably the most powerful three words in this whole chapter. Such were you. Such were you. I want you to notice two things about what he says here. First, he says, you know, these are not simply actions people do. This is their very identities. And so he doesn't say, hey, this is what they do. He's saying this is who they are. That's how it's worded. Yo, this is huge. Before Paul got into any of these specific situations, we saw the first chapter, chapter 1, at the very beginning, Paul started dealing with their identity, started dealing with who they are. And you have to know this, because listen, if you have nothing greater than you to decide who you are, all you're left with is what you've done. That's it. If it's up to you to decide, earn, maintain your own identity then you're nothing more than what you've done. You know, we see this. This is our culture. We see this all around us, don't we? How many people identify themselves simply by their sexuality or simply by one of their hobbies? How many times have we seen somebody labeled, canceled because of the worst thing they've done? A few years ago, you did that, and that's not just something you did. That is who you are. But there's a second thing. There's a second thing for the Christian. For the Christian, this is all past tense. Not because he's under the impression they would never do any of these actions ever again, but simply because it's not who they are anymore. Something greater. He's saying something greater has given you a new identity beyond what you've done. 
And so this is who you are now. You're washed. He says you're washed. He's, ta- he's talking about the stain of sin. Oh, you did all of those things. You checked every box. But as far as the east is from the west, your sins have been removed from you. As white as the snow, you are forgiven. That stain is not with you anymore. Now, you didn't wash yourself. The blood of Jesus washed you. The cross paid your debt in full. Jesus took all of your guilt on himself, and so you don't have it anymore. He says you're sanctified. He's talking about the grip of sin. You have a new ability. You have an ability you didn't used to have, and that is the ability not to sin because you are no longer its slave. He has set you free. And then he says you are justified. He's talking about the sentence of sin. You have been declared not guilty, not in some Greek court, but in the court of the most high God. Your innocence is settled law as far as God's concerned. Because he looked at you, he compared his perfect, holy, righteous standard, and he compared you to it, and he said, you meet the mark. And you you may say, well, when did I do that? You didn't. Never. You never did. But Jesus did, and he credits it all to your account. He transfers it to your account as a gift for free. And so here, when he says, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, he is saying something greater than you has transformed you. You're not defined by what you have done. You are defined by what Jesus has done. Men and women, if we will absorb this deep into our bones, deep into our souls, Won't it affect how we handle our disagreements between each other? You better believe it will. You better believe it. So we have have this local problem. We got frivolous lawsuits going on. We have our theology. We have tomorrow's hope. We have yesterday's transformation. Now let's look at how Paul connects these dots, how he applies the universal theology to their problem. There's no doubt about it, y'all. In verse 1, he's using strong sarcastic language. Again, I didn't know you could talk like this in the Bible, but apparently you can. He is strong. He clearly wants them to stop. He clearly wants them to stop doing this. But why? He says in verse 7, he essentially says, listen, you can win the battle and lose the war. You lose the war with your witness. And so he said, okay, let's say you win. You go to court, you win. Congratulations. Have you put the cross on display? Think about Joe Greek sitting there in the the jury. Does he have any sense that you will judge angels one day when you you can't even judge amongst yourselves? Listen, men and women, we don't let today's disagreements be settled with tomorrow's hope. The watching world, and I would say rightfully so, concludes we must not have much of a hope for tomorrow. Then he says, you can lose the war with yourself. He says in verse 8, you're you're doing the same things they're doing. You're living in your old identity. You've reverted back to who you were. You're not living in who you are right now. But then he says, the other thing he says is, when you're wronged and when you're defrauded, he says, you've lost nothing that matters most and you've gained something that's worth it. So no matter what happens in these courts today, 
You've lost nothing that matters most, but you can gain something that is worth it. So he asks these series of rhetorical questions. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Let me ask you. So think about this. When you are wronged, when you are defrauded, is your future hope at risk? Not even a little bit. Is your past transformation threatened at all? Not even a little bit. Now, that doesn't make it easy, but it does put it in perspective, doesn't it? And then I would add, the the only way you would rather be wronged is if there is something else greater that makes it worth it. Well, what was that thing that we're supposed to all put on display again? The cross. Talk about being wronged. Talk about being defrauded. Jesus was completely innocent, and it was a sham trial. No one has ever been more wrong. No one has ever been more defrauded. And yet, God used that to make you washed, sanctified, and justified. Men and women, I hope you know God is still in the business of taking what the enemy intended for evil and working it for good. God is still in the business of bringing new life from death. And he does it in us. He does it in his church. He does it through his people. Remember that list? You know, all those heathens out there doing all that stuff. The ones, you know, who are just like you were. What if God wants to use your suffering to give them a transformed past and a future hope? What if the way they come, came to understand the cross was by watching you? That's how it's supposed to work. Men and women, listen, we don't put the cross on display by our jewelry, by our t-shirts, by our walls in our homes. We put the cross on display when we are willing to suffer today so that God can grant tomorrow's hope and yesterday's transformation to other people. That's what makes it worth it, men and women. That's how the Bible can say, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And in the same way, his people say, for the joy set before us, we will endure, we will be wronged, we will even be defrauded. That's how he connects the dots. Isn't that amazing? What a message. So how do we apply it today? You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of people smarter than me, so application's easy. None of y'all sue each other. Let's go have lunch. That's simple. I'm just, I'm just not convinced it's that simple. You know, we've already seen there's differences in our cultures. We've seen there's limits to what Paul is saying. We've already discussed, you know, in Romans, Paul says the government is established by God. And, you know, the judiciary is part of that government. Plus, I would say, you know, it's easy enough to think of occasions that would be very bad advice. I mean, should a Christian woman not seek protection for her and her children from an abusive husband? And then on the other side of the coin, listen, just because you've never sued anybody doesn't mean you're settling today's disagreements with tomorrow's hope and yesterday's transformation. It's not necessarily one and the same. So 
Here's how I would put it. Here's how I would put it in today's language. This is just Clint. This is not the Bible. And lots of very smart people who write very thick books will disagree with me, okay? But here's how, here's how I would apply it today. Don't look to human authorities for healthy relationships. Don't look to human authorities to make healthy relationships because only God can do that. You know that we happen to have a lot of attorneys at Bethel, for better or worse, I don't know. There you go. Amen, amen. We, we got some good ones. And I've heard more than once, you know, I wish people would simply understand what a court can and cannot do. And it seems to especially come out in issues of like, like family law. Well, say people will spend decades in court going back and forth. They will go bankrupt. They will empty their bank accounts going back and forth in court, and they will never get what they want. Because what do they really want? They want someone to heal the broken relationships. They want a healthy and a happy home. Or maybe they want some sense of closure. Or maybe they want somebody to, to make everything right again. But y'all, no court can ever do that. In fact, Warren, Warren Berger, he's a former chief justice of the Supreme Court. So the head honcho of the judiciary said this. One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. You know, the head honcho, chief justice of the Supreme Court, saying there is a lot that we want that the courts cannot offer, that only things like families and churches and, and neighborhoods can, healthy relationships. And here's why. Here's why a court can never do that. Y'all, the best, the best a court can ever offer you is law based on past actions. That's the extent of its power. That's all that it can do. But let me ask you this. Did law give you a right relationship with God? Did law make you washed, sanctified, justified? No. In fact, law can only do the opposite. The law can't wash. The law convicts. The law can't sanctify. No, the law exposes all of our sin and wrongdoing. The law can't justify. The law condemns. No, wa washing, sanctifying, justifying, that came through grace. That took grace, the grace of the cross. That's what gave you a right relationship with God. And you know what? Only grace can give us a right relationship with each other too. It takes grace. So when we have disagreements, listen, and we will, let's settle them with tomorrow's hope and yesterday's transformation because in those things, we will find the supernatural grace of God that will allow us to love one another the way Christ has loved us. And listen, if you're if you're here today, and I'll just say this in closing, if you are here today and you've been looking to any human authority, whether a judge or yourself, to tell you who you are, to give you hope, to make everything right, I say the same thing to you this morning. Don't look to human authorities for what only God can give. 
the reason grace is available to you this morning is because Jesus himself was willing to be wronged, willing to suffer. He took the full force of the law, not for his sin, for your sin. And because of that, Paul says in Romans 3, he says the thing. He says, you can have a right relationship with God apart from the law. He's saying there's a force that has come that is much more powerful than this law that can do what this law never could. And it is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the force of grace. And so now you can have a right relationship with God as a gift through faith. And so you today, you can accept from God what no human authority can ever give you, including yourself, a transformed past. You can be washed sanctified, justified, and a hope-filled future. Co-heirs with Christ. It's all a gift. And I invite you to believe it this morning. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.